0: Today on The Black Goat, we talk about being different, our stories around race and ethnicity, gender, and sexual orientation in our lives and in our work, and a letter about the whims of reviewers and dissertation committee members. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with my co-hosts, Alexa Tullett and Samin Vizier. And summer is, for a lot of us, a time to kind of have a different pace, to do different things. And Samin, you're using it for a little continuing education.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been, this is like the maybe eighth time I've tried to learn R. <laughs> so <laughs> I was going to say, for, yeah. I sent up for a one-day workshop at Stanford, um, and it it was good, like, the teacher was good and everything, but it wasn't really what I needed, but it still, like, forced me to sit with my laptop and R for, like, six hours, which is really what... I just need to, like, be, like, in contact with R, and then eventually it won't be as scary and all. So I think I've decided my next step is going to be to try to work through um, Hadley Wickham and his co-authors book r for data science and just learn tidy verse because it sounds like that's a little bit easier than learning base r see now i can mm-hmm. say things like that whereas before the class i couldn't <laughs> even say that
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah my I've, eyes just glazed over as yeah, i said <laughs> tidy verse yeah
0: i really like that book i i the book is really i found it really well written i like uh, yeah i'm still sort of learning tidy verse but it's it's a really good reference and and all that but I don't. So, are you? You're just trying to learn R. Do you have like a data analysis project you're using it on, no. or you're just trying to learn it to learn so, it?
1: I mean, this is the other like embarrassing thing is I don't even understand our data analysis conceptually well enough. Like, it's not just a matter of not knowing the programming. Like, I wouldn't be able to do the data analysis for most of our papers myself. So, luckily, my grad students and my collaborators are way more advanced than me. And I'm like, I think I serve a role in like asking questions because I'm like somebody who has my level of understanding wouldn't understand this part. Can you explain it more and so on. That's basically my role in the, like, analysis part of the papers. So I don't have much hope that I'll, like, learn R and then be able to do the analyses for my projects with my grad students. But my my goal is to be able to learn R well enough to uh, try to reproduce people's results when I review or handle a manuscript and they submit the data and code, which is, like, mm-hmm. much easier, right? Because they're already providing the code. and. But I want to be able to not just copy and paste it and see if I get the same results, but, like, understand what they're doing. and. I'll start with like t-tests and NOVA's correlations, stuff like that. So I feel like I don't do that in my own research. So like the best place to practice is with other people's data and code. And then this way, it'll also serve a purpose of like checking reproducibility before, well, during the review process. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll see oh, if yeah. I actually
2: get there, but that's my yeah. goal. <laughs> we can, we can do an update in like three months. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're <laughs> or in a year, letter. Yeah, right. <laughs> three months is a little optimistic.
0: I feel like what what you said to is something that I would have been like quasi scandalized by when I was a graduate student, yeah, mm-hmm. which is that you you can't do all the analyses for your own papers. And right. now now I'm <laughs> I'm sort of at a point. I had this. I can't remember. Maybe I've told this story before, but I, I was talking to a colleague of mine who's who's a little bit uh, um, more more senior than I am, and and I was saying like you know it used to be the case when I did research projects that I like had the skill set and knowledge to do anything on the project and that the reason for having lab and RAs and grad students and all that was just like division of labor and I was like more and more I'm working on these projects where I literally couldn't do certain things even if I wanted to and he just he laughed and he he kind of like patted me on the shoulder and he's like yep welcome to this career stage like you know that's just kind of yeah you know and and it's like you know at a certain point like one, the field changes, but two, like you work on more and more complex projects. Right. And and if if the complexity of science was limited by what one person could know, it would, that would be a big cap on what science can do.
2: Yeah,
1: although I think it's it is there are downsides to the fact that things are getting more and more complex. And I think one of the reasons I have gotten up the guts to admit publicly that I don't know all the stats in my own papers is because I see so many papers through like peer review and stuff where they get like really basic things wrong. Like I can tell that they did the mediation wrong or things like that and that makes me realize like all of us are in over our heads and we should actually be talking about this more and mm-hmm. I, might, I might write a blog post about it soon
2: mm-hmm. yeah um i know we just said that we would talk about this our workshop but i have a non-sequitur question for you guys <laughs> um as adults have you guys ever pooped in the woods surely
0: once
1: i'm
2: sure i have <laughs> oh, i can't remember
1: once
0: i d- Once I was, uh, I was, this was like, maybe this was a long time ago, but uh, because I'm an old enough adult that I can say things as an adult were a long time ago. But anyway, I was, I was running. And I was like, far from any... Uh-huh. Uh, any facilities and there was it just hit me and there was no way I was gonna get back and so I was like oh shit literally uh, so yeah <laughs> so I, like I, I got like really far I was like on this I was trail running I got like really far off the trail and I was like paranoid that someone's gonna <laughs> see me and I was so embarrassed <laughs> and actually I've never told anybody wow. this before in my life
2: this is gonna be yeah this is the episode of confessionals yeah right um,
1: <laughs> I went backpacking for four days so I assume
2: I pooped <laughs> yeah but so you never know i'm supposed to <laughs> we're gonna come back to you not knowing whether you poop for four days and yeah. not being concerned if you didn't <laughs> um next episode <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i well i'm going uh camping this weekend for uh, like basic one or two nights um and my friend who is like much more outdoorsy than me and goes camping all the time sent me an email and she was like, yeah, I was thinking of going to this place and like, you know, it's going to be like pretty like, you know, roughing it camping. And she was like, if you need like there to be toilets and stuff like, you know, we could like look at other places. And I was like too shy to respond to be like, wait, does this mean I have to poop in the woods? Because <laughs> I don't I couldn't tell you the last time I pooped in the woods. I think it was quite a long time ago.
0: Hmm. Oh, that's funny. I did it. I I must have done it. If, I used to I was in Boy Scouts as a kid and we camped like every month of the year and and so I must have done it on yeah, I'm sure I did it as a as a boy scout, but like I feel like that's that that always felt like legit because that's like you're camping. You're supposed to. You have to. Um, so I never felt like embarrassed about that. It was the running thing was different. Yeah, actually now I'm not going to make it. Uh, it I like, pooped on like, a relatively
1: yeah. short hike in Hawaii not that long ago. <laughs> 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 yeah,
2: I actually. Um, well, okay, it's not pooping in the woods, but I had to pee during like a a half marathon where there's like a ton of people everywhere. Peeing and in like, the woods. Like I probably did that in the last two weeks. That's not a big deal. Yeah, but like, I don't know. There's not a lot of places to hide in a half That's marathon. True. It's like it's like yeah, in, the, right, right. in the middle of a city. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so like, anyways, I think a lot of people saw my butt probably, but yeah. I
0: saw this thing on Twitter the other day where there someone proposed. I don't know if they're actually doing this. I didn't sort of read it closely, but there was a picture of this. Um, these like walk up urinals on the streets in. I think it was in Paris, mm-hmm. and it's literally. It's just like. It's this, like, it looks kind of like a mailbox with these two pieces of metal on the side, and, and like, a dude, there's, like, a dude just standing there, like, out in the open. There's no, you know, and I was, like, and all these people were tweeting below, like, this is such a great idea, and whatever, and I was, was like, one, okay, that doesn't help women, and, and two, like... Really? Like, I would feel so weird just, like, whipping it out where, like, I could make eye contact with other people.
1: This actually connects to our main topic about gender. Um, (laughs) Wait, so sometimes when I go to the bathroom, I think I just have to pee, but it turns out I have to poop. What do men do? Like, if you're at the urinal, does that ever happen to you where you're like, oh, wait, this was a bad decision?
0: (laughs) I mean, never, never so suddenly and okay. unexpectedly that I, like, couldn't get <laughs> myself to a stall. I mean, they're, they're right next to But is it embarrassing to, to be
1: like, okay, I'm done with the urinal, now I'm going into a stall. No big deal.
0: I guess it's a little weird. Okay. I, I mean, yeah, I would feel maybe a little self-conscious if there are other people around, and I, like, zipped up and walked into a stall. But, I mean, <laughs> people do is, yeah. way worse things in That's men's true. rooms. So, okay. Anyway.
1: I think we've lost most of our listeners by now, but... <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> good cuz i'm
0: nervous about today's topic. Yeah, we only have the hardcore listeners. If you're still with us now, yeah. you get
2: to hear our confession. Wait, just to get rid that... of the last one's. At urinals, do men ever pull their pants down or do they just unzip their flies?
0: It's it's kind of it's like a little kid thing to do. Like ah, okay. little kids will um uh like drop their pants all the way so you can see their butt. And it's kind of it's kind of something that you that guys would get teased about or or uh-huh, you know yeah. um, yeah, it's sort. It's sort of. Um, yeah, right. Like, it, it would. It would be something that you'd probably get made fun of for.
2: Okay. Yeah. I hear about some crazy stuff that goes on in men's locker rooms, so I wouldn't be surprised. You know, if there were just like one or two rogue dudes that pulled their pants down. Um, like what kind signaling? of stuff have you heard about?
0: What kind <laughs> yeah. of stuff have you heard about locker rooms <laughs> besides the like the the presidential talk version?
2: Uh like drying your balls under a hand dryer <laughs> i feel like we need to save this for a whole episode
0: <laughs> i i feel like we're, we're doing this in the wrong order where right. we've got such a heavy topic coming up and we're doing the lighthearted stuff first mm-hmm. we're gonna need like some comedy to break
2: the tension yeah maybe at years, the very end we could come back come to back so to- <laughs> we've seen in <laughs>
0: <rooms>. <laughs> and now that we're done let's talk about balls again <laughs> uh, yeah all right well let's uh should we do our letter
2: Yeah. Um, Yes. All right. Okay. Uh, Dear the Black Goat, I recently had a set of experiences and discussions with colleagues that led to my question. Do committee members and reviewers have too much power without being held to the same standards as researchers? Recently, one of my dissertation committee members asked, what about gender? This question seemed to be the project of or sorry the product of a fleeting thought, and despite appearing relatively straightforward, resulted in over forty hours of analyses that led to the conclusion that gender did not moderate any of the facts in question. It seems like curiosities or preferences like this one, brought up by my committee member, have the potential to generate massive amounts of work without adding much to the project. Furthermore, based on my experience, standards for suggesting changes to a project were or additional analyses are much lower than those required of the researcher's inis- initial justification for the project. Why do we expect researchers to spend months researching and writing a paper, but quickly accept the critiques of peers written in just a couple of hours? Thank you, anonymous. I think this is... I can
0: already hear Chris Chambers yeah, screaming right, into reports. his computer. Yeah. <laughs> but I think
1: this is so important, and like I don't, I, don't, I think we don't talk enough about like the ridiculous imbalance of like power and accountability and peer review and how editors and reviewers can just be like now you will stand on one foot and lean to the right and like hold your breath and do this and authors are like okay um and I get really frustrated and I catch myself doing this too like I've been trying really hard more and more to be like which of the things I want to raise are like relatively objective and which ones are just like my own personal preference or curiosity and trying to like flag the ones that are just more curiosity as that that like explicitly say the authors don't have to do this I just had this thought and if they think it's interesting they can pursue it and also with my grad students I try to do the same thing where like if I had this idea like huh what if we did it this way I'll try to be like really explicit like if it's going to take you like 40 hours to find out then it, right my, uh, my question was not at that level I was just curious if like if it takes 10 minutes I'm curious to know the answer to this question um, but I think yeah reviewers and committee members and stuff don't don't have enough of a burden to ask themselves, like, is this really crucial? Is this something that, like, objectively they need to do or would be a deal breaker or that kind of thing?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, And I think, like, within a like a typical review, I guess there's um sort of a. I, I don't think this is very normal. I think that normally people basically try to address every reviewer comment, but at least you sort of have the opportunity of being of saying like, so-and-so raised this issue um, and we decided for these reasons not to follow their suggestion. Um, But I think that graduate students in dissertation and thesis meetings have it a bit worse. At least, I don't know what the norms are like at other places, but here the norms are very much like, as soon as somebody suggests something, then you have to address it. And it is like also people's comments within a meeting are less thought out usually. So somebody will just like throw something out there. Like, I wonder, or like, yeah, what about gender? Um, whereas I think in a review, maybe people, have, they at least have more time to consider whether their suggestions are important.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like in the review process, you hear people who have edited talking about how they're, some people will say like, yeah, I'm okay if an author says, I don't want to do that or, or you know, whatever. But the, the problem is that the the cost benefit analysis, unless the, I think, I think editors should be clear about that and that upfront because the cost benefit analysis for like, if you're, if you're the author and you're sitting there and you're like, well, I don't know if I say I'm not going to do this it might the editor might be okay with that or they might reject it Mm -hmm. and i don't know and so the costs of like getting rejected after investing all this and whatever yeah
1: (laughs) i think that's another norm of editing that needs to change is that it's considered like really rude to go against a reviewer's comment so you just like don't mention the things you don't agree with but That's very confusing because a lot of reviewers' points I won't mention because they're so small that obviously you should address it. Like, you should fix that typo on page three or whatever. Right. And so I think that puts authors in a really difficult position to know. Like, if I'm not mentioning something, is it because, like, obviously you should do it, but it's, like, relatively straightforward so I don't need to mention it or is it so I've tried when it's like a big request on the part of the reviewer and I really don't think the author should do it I I do try to say that in the letter but I feel like I'm breaking some kind of norm where you're not supposed to like criticize the reviewers or disagree with them or whatever because they're doing this service and they're volunteering but I think yeah I think editors need to like me I need to grow a pair and just like be like no I, I actually disagree with the reviewer on this point and I think you don't need to do this or even you shouldn't
2: do this
0: yeah. Yeah. Do I think you, one of the ways. Oh God. I was just
2: going to say, do you um, evaluate things differently if a reviewer suggests something that you think is wrong? Um, I was wondering that. I I haven't been in a situation like that, but I was in a situation where yeah, I thought that a reviewer asked for something like relatively large that I disagreed with, and I tried to um, to tell the authors that like their you know their their acceptance wouldn't like hinge on them doing that, but mm-hmm. some sort of like uh compromise um yeah. but if if a reviewer suggests something that like you don't like
1: yeah you, I think that I usually say it explicitly but I don't I might be fooling myself like I I don't know how good I am about that but I think I do and or sometimes what I'll do is I'll say look the fact that the reviewer had this concern suggests that like you need to address why that's not a like a legitimate concern somehow uh, you I need see. to be clearer about about the thing that caused them to have this reaction but but I try to phrase it in ways like, obviously I don't think there, I think the reviewer misinterpreted something, but like maybe there's something in your paper that made them interpret it this way or something like that.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, one one of the ways that committee meetings are different from the editorial process, and, and I think the editorial process hasn't changed as much as it could, and there may be good reasons, but is that the editorial process is very much about one-way, one-time communication, right? Mm-hmm. So the reviewer writes the review, sends it to the editor, and they're kind of done. Mm-hmm. And then the editor writes the action letter. And the, the normal, traditional model is like the editor writes the letter, sends it to the authors, and then doesn't hear back for three to six months until they get the thing with everything. And so there's no opportunity. I mean, we could have more conversation, and there would be costs to that because it takes up more people's time. But, but there's typically... The typical case is that there's no back and forth. One of the things that I think when committee meetings, when like dissertations go well, that I see happening is more conversation about these kinds of meta issues, like how important is that really? And like, how much work is that going to be for this person? And we'll often in proposal meetings or or defenses, like the when I'm on the committee, we'll often try to come up with like an actual action list of items. So that and and we'll say, like, okay, what, you know, oftentimes, like, the chair sits there and takes notes during the meeting and then says, here are all the things that came mm-hmm. up. Which are the ones we want this person to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and there'll often be a discussion of, like, is this going to send them down some long rabbit hole? Is this going to be a lot of work? Is this going to hold up their progress? So that can happen. Yeah. Um, and I, I think a lot of the onus, it's it's a matter of norms, and it's also a matter of initiative by the chair and probably, like, you know, brand new like an assistant professor with their first grad student i think is less likely to do that unless they get encouraged or signaled by their colleagues and so you know i feel like we've got decent norms i don't know maybe our maybe some of my grad students are gonna write it like no sanjay you made mm-hmm. us like do all this shit but that's
1: a really good recommendation not so much for the litter writer but for other listeners who are faculty that like this would be a good thing to institute as a regular thing yeah at the yeah. end of our meetings
0: yeah. mm-hmm. but i think the You know sometimes at least like someone in the the letter writer's position could say hey you asked this question this would be if if, you know if they can tell up front they can say this would be 40 hours of work um how serious how important is this how serious is this do you think it's worth my time Mm -hmm. to do that it really depends a lot on the norms it depends a lot on who's asking and you know sort of whether they're a jerk or whatever but Mm -hmm. at least sometimes that's a thing that you could do
2: Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. what do you guys think about is it okay to sometimes write extremely short reviews that are just like pretty much this all looks good to me i like it change your typo on page three
0: it's okay if you're reviewing one of my papers. i would i would i
1: would add like a short bullet point list of like what you if you thought it was really good i would add a short like Mm -hmm. three phrases about like what made this especially good because otherwise I think it's very hard for the editor to know if you just didn't care and like skimmed it and were like I don't see any problem with it or if you read it carefully and thought it was really good. Okay yeah that's a good point. So I wouldn't keep it extremely short but it can be short it can be one paragraph but you should like list unique characteristics of this paper that made it especially good I think.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah so I guess our, our advice for the letter writer would be you know, I think in, in a committee context, it really depends on your relationships, but it's it's probably okay to speak up. And I mean, mean what what would you say, like, if, do you, as an editor, if somebody, if a, an author emails you back and says, look, this reviewer said this thing, um, your letter didn't really talk about, yes, I should definitely do it, or no, I shouldn't, how, you know, this is like, running another study is going to be a lot of work, or, you know, whatever it is. Um Like, are you, do you welcome those? Do you roll your eyes at those? Is it sometimes one, sometimes the other? I
1: think it's fine. I I don't love having email communication because I feel like it's already so much work to be an editor. And if you add on, if, if I got a lot of emails on top of, like, the formal communications through the peer review system, it would be overwhelming. But, so, like... It's hard. I understand from an author's perspective, you don't want to leave it up to like your cover letter to make the case like you want to know ahead of time, is it going to be okay if I don't do this? So I I think it's fine to email the editor. But like, it turns out in my case, like I think if an author makes a really good case in the cover letter for why they didn't do that, I will listen, I am open to that. And so I think you should always keep that in mind, especially if the editor didn't highlight the thing the reviewer said and it's a relatively big thing like I think if it's a relatively big thing you can assume the editor would have mentioned it if they strongly agreed or felt like this was necessary for you to do but I mean different editors are different so I think it is reasonable to email the editor and just be like I just want to clarify is this necessary or is it worth resubmitting if we're not going to do this
0: cool so kind of save it for big things and for when it's really genuinely ambiguous yeah yeah cool Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. Well, I hope we helped uh, Anonymous I like that and other people listening. Yeah. That was a good letter. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I like that one, too. Um, and yeah, if you're listening and you want to send us a letter for us to read and discuss on the podcast, or if you just want to get in touch with us, you can email us letters at blackcoatpodcast.com. Uh, we always appreciate letters. We always appreciate feedback on social media and uh, other places, um, you can subscribe you can rate us on iTunes that helps people find us and there's lots of ways to reach us so in addition to email uh, you can tweet at us we're at Black Pod we've got a Facebook page Facebook.com slash Pod we now have an Instagram Instagram.com slash Pod which is mostly pictures like selfies and pictures of Hugo the dog mm-hmm. um, and uh, did I miss anything oh we're on the web at www.theblackgoatpodcast.com Okay, so for our main topic, we kind of came up with we're probably, I don't know, we, we come up with titles afterwards, but we'll probably stick with this title being different, I don't know, unless we come up with something better. Um, dry, dry, drying yourself in the men's r- anyway, whatever. Um, uh, can we just go back to talking about that? I, 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 I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to just fess up, I'm a little nervous, yeah. um, and this yeah, is the same. first time I've felt nervous recording a podcast. I'm not nervous,
2: um, but I did have a little bit of... Lafayette. I had a I had a pre-podcast <laughs> beer today too. Um I went to um exercise class this morning and then I was leaving and and my friend Kat who uh owns the exercise studio said like hey what are you doing right now? And I was like, uh I'm gonna go home and chug a beer before I record this podcast. <laughs> it was like ten AM. <laughs> yeah.
0: And so the the reason I think the reason we're feeling that way, so we decided to talk about this topic of being different and I think we decided, you know, we don't want to do Race 101, Gender 101, Sexual Orientation 101. We want to talk about our personal stories. And in many cases, that might mean, like, this is my experience of, of being different in this way that might not be representing this group. So we want to make that clear to our listeners up front that we're not trying to speak for other people.
2: Yeah, right.
1: And give um, credit but, where we got the idea, or at least for me, it came from watching Hannah Gatsby's show, Nanette, where she talked a lot, like the theme of it is really like being different in many of these yeah. dimensions. It was very really thought provoking.
0: Yeah. So we all we all watched Nanette. Uh, you guys kind of texted me and said, "Oh, you got to watch this." And and I think that was like definitely a big part of the inspiration. Um, and and I think I don't know if we'll end up discussing this, but the idea of sort of personal storytelling is a really big theme in that mm-hmm. special. So we'll we'll link that in the in the show notes, but. Um, yeah, we, you know, and and for me, and I, I, I suspect for Alexa and and for Samin, if she hadn't already had her pre-show whiskey, mm-hmm. but uh, um, you know, it, these aren't these are things that I kind of talk about and kind of don't, and and I I'm not sure where exactly we're gonna go, but we we decided that we're gonna start by talking about race and ethnicity, and then gender, and then sexual orientation. We're kind of each one of us is gonna take one of those and start by telling our story, not because I don't have a gender or Alexa doesn't have a race or anything like that, but just kind of as a a way to move things forward. And so I guess I'm going to start, um, and talking about, oh, I'm nervous guys, uh, being different, uh, race and ethnicity. And it is, you know, the, the, the idea of sort of speaking for yourself and not for a group is a really salient one for me in part, because that's been a really, I think, big part of my own experience. So my background: um, my dad immigrated from India, um, and you know is, is Indian, born and raised uh, in India. My mom is white. My mom uh, grew up on a in a rural farming community. Um, the family was Germans from Russia, which is a kind of migrant ethnic group um, uh, that that some people might know about. Um, And so I, you know, they they met. They actually just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. So they've been together a long time. But they they met in Chicago in the 1960s. And so I had this upbringing. uh, We moved around a little bit. But, you know, I had this upbringing living, you know, with these two different cultural backgrounds and living in predominantly white communities. And, you know, going through the world being perceived as different so I uh if you listen to the podcast but haven't seen me or met me you know I have I look different uh, from white people (laughs) that's like I don't I don't pass um I'm I'm kind of racially ambiguous to some people if they if they don't recognize that my name is an Indian name and they just see me people don't always know what to make of me um but people, uh, um, in an American context, people tend not to think that I'm quote unquote American or, or white. Um, whether they think I'm American is kind of a complicated topic. Um, so I grew up in with these two different backgrounds. And, and so I had these two sort of cultural backgrounds that in some ways, I felt connected to both of them. And in some ways, I felt different from both of them, right? So you know, my, the Indian part of my identity is a big part of how I'm perceived by other people walking through the world, um, when they think about race and ethnicity at all, um, they, you know, that's, that's kind of, people don't go, oh yeah, he's, you know, descendant of, you know, North Dakota homesteaders, you know, (laughs) um, and so, uh, um, you know so so I sort of stand out in in a lot of kind of white American contexts but also you know I have a lot of connections in Indian culture but I have a lot of differences too because I didn't grow up speaking the the language of my family I didn't grow up in larger communities um, so my connections to Indian culture are very much through family through my dad and through extended relatives and, and time we would spend together growing up and that kind of thing um, and so in some ways like I'm both. And in some ways, I'm not both. Um, and it's kind of interesting that I've, I've sometimes felt like there's not a cultural setting that feels really deeply home for me. And in, in some ways, you know, I, I grew up in homogeneously white areas, I live in a very homogeneously white state uh, and, and city. Um, and in some ways, when I've lived in, in Oakland and Los Angeles, um, these very diverse places, something about just being around people that are all different ways feels at home in a way that being around people that are all of anything, you know, I don't feel like, Oh, I'm back home when I'm, when I travel to India. Um, I think another thing that for me has been, and I think this is actually more true of a lot of people, people of color than, than gets talked about much is that my own experience is that race and ethnicity are many things that don't always line up with each other. So, you know, there's like how you feel and identify and that right there is fluid. And it, it, for me, it depends. I think about it more sometimes and less sometimes. And I think about it differently in different settings. Um, uh, But then, you know, there's also like your race is how you're seen by others and how that affects how they treat you. and, And that can be independent of your identity. And so you know, how you're categorized, um, by others and, and how they interact. And, you know, it's also your relationships and the people you feel connected to, and it's your knowledge and experience of cultural practices and and things like that. Um, and so for me, you know, there's a lot of fluidity in these things, but also, you know, this is like, there are time, there are a lot of times when they don't line up when how I feel and how I'm being perceived or treated are very different. Um, uh, you know, um, and, and it, it's interesting for me that I, you know, over time it, when I hear people who have multiracial or multicultural backgrounds talk, there are certain common themes that come up that more that are kind of, um, I, it's too strong to say that there's like a universal multiracial <laughs> experience because like the particulars are very different, but, mm-hmm. you know, I had this feeling when I read Obama's dreams from my father, like, Obviously, in ways that are just like blatantly obvious, his experience of race was different from mine. But there were certain sort of themes or notes in his experience of being between different racial backgrounds and and his experience of, you know, having, you know, being raised by a white family, um, but being seen differently by the world. There were certain, you know parts of that that kind of resonated with me that were interesting and that that other people with multiracial backgrounds I, i occasionally hear those themes when they talk as well um but yeah so i mean you know like my experience of how i'm treated by others has varied and you know it's like i mean as a kid a lot of that stuff was much more on the surface like you know just sort of like little kids especially in the 70s and 80s, don't know not to be racist. And so like I've been called every racial slur you know, in part because of being racially ambiguous. Like I learned the N-word by being called it. Um, I, you know, and I, I got called all different kinds of things. I got called slurs about Hispanic people and Middle Eastern people and Native Americans and all kinds of things like that. So, you know, that, that's been, you know, and, and there was, you know, racist bullying, not a, not a ton, but some of it, you know, as a kid, as an adult thankfully that's not part of my daily experience mm-hmm, yeah. and so you know it's more subtle and sometimes it's it's for the better and sometimes it's not but like I still have to deal with shit and um like this has been on my mind lately in part because you know like this thing happened recently with uh, my wife's uh, parents where they were talking to a friend of theirs and the friend just started going off about how they don't like working with Indian people. and like didn't didn't register or make the connection that they were talking to someone who has a son-in-law and a grandson who are Indian. Um, and, you know, it's a, and and my wife was like fuming when she heard about this. She was really upset by it. And my response was was kind of like, yeah I kind of I know this is part of how people see me and it doesn't always come to the surface and and I know this is just like you know in white communities and white settings I know there are I know there's way more of this than is expressed in behavior but that's guiding people's thinking Um, and so I kind of like I think you know and also like these are people that my wife grew up Uh, with as family friends as the the important adults in her life and and there was I think a sense of like you know much more a sense of like betrayal than for me it's just like well yeah your parents have a lot of white friends in the suburbs of Detroit I kind of figured there's like they're not all like woke (laughs) you know Um, anyway so yeah and then I guess my you know my experience in academic psychology of you know, is, is really interesting because it does, it affects how people see me in good and bad ways. I think, you know, people, people want to, there, there are some people who kind of want psychology and want academia to be more diverse, and, and who, you know, are interested in hearing about people's experiences of being different. There are, you know, a lot of very dismissive and diminishing experiences that I've had as well sometimes well-intentioned, sometimes not, um, you know, tokenism and, and things like that. Um, you know, I think something, I, my, my feelings about this stuff have evolved a lot over the years, and, and something that I'm more, uh, um, you know, I'm doing more explicitly diversity work recently. I think when I was younger, I would have a lot of times the experience of like, people would look to me to be like the diversity guy because I was like the only brown person in the room. And I'd mm-hmm. be like, oh, come on, you know. Um, and, and I'm doing more things out of my own motivation now where it doesn't, doesn't have that kind of like, that feeling of like people are asking me to do this because they want a brown person to give them cover. But it's actually like, as I've gotten more advanced in my career and have more visibility and more security, feeling more like I can do things that I want to do. Anyway, sorry, I talked for a really long time, didn't I?
2: I hope that's what happens to me because of being nervous, (laughs) but I don't think it's going to be like that. Um, Do you know why things have changed for you in terms of like being sort of willing to um, head diversity initiatives and stuff like that?
0: I think, you know, some some of it has been... I've seen opportunities like where I felt like I could do something and make a difference. A lot of that has been in connection to open science um because I've seen the potential ways it could go wrong and the potential ways it could synergize and and the open science movement is really young and new, and there's a chance to like you know influence it for the better before things get set in stone um but I think it's also you know it's just the like when you know, like I mean, there, so there, there was this thing that happened when I was in grad school, where in California, Prop Two Hundred Nine passed, which um, uh, sort of um, basically cut the legs out from under affirmative action programs. And so the the psych department at Berkeley um, like ha- held this meeting, and ba- so basically, I get this like email like we're we're asking some graduate students to come to a meeting to talk about our graduate program. It was super vague. I was like, what, what is this about? And I show up at the meeting and this became like a joke among the people. The meeting later on, it's like, oh, they invited all the brown people and a couple of the swarthy white people too. And, you know, it was just <laughs> yeah. like, and it, it was kind of like they wanted to talk about what to do next after Prop 209, which was a great thing. But then, you know, people were saying things like, maybe we could just take a picture of all of you and put it on the brochure and that'll help. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my God, if you just want to make us feel not useful, that's a thing to do. And so a lot of my experiences around diversity efforts were, were like that where these sort of well-intentioned things that actually ended up making me feel less needed or like I was going to have to deal with shit. Um, And so, and I was constantly getting asked to do stuff and sometimes I would, and sometimes I wouldn't. And and it feels very different when it's like, I see a thing I could do and I'm going to do it because I want to, not because like, yeah i'm I'm going to be the token person or whatever
1: right yeah yes Sandri, you and i have talked a lot about these issues and actually our, our conversations my conversations with you have been like some of the best conversations i've had around this topic and so i'm going to ask you some of the same questions that i've asked you in private because i think for me and it was really helpful to talk through those things so like on paper we have a lot of similarities my dad is iranian in my case um, but i didn't grow up there um my mom is white, etc. And but a big difference is that my skin is a lot lighter than yours, and I easily pass for white. Um, and so I've I've asked myself a lot, like, do I count as a person of color or not? And like I've gone back and forth. Sometimes in college I would go to meetings, and sometimes I wouldn't. Sometimes I would apply for fellowships or scholarships. Sometimes I wouldn't. Nine eleven changed how I felt about that temporarily, and then that faded, but I'm but not completely and. Um, and so I'm, I've, yeah, I think you're the, like the main person I've come to for advice about like how to think through those things. Um, and I think for me, like the biggest one is, is like, yeah, not wanting to take opportunities away from other people who have more like claim to being a person of color or being disadvantaged. And those are obviously very different things, but they intersect. Um, and so I'm curious if you've ever thought about that, about like applying for awards or fellowships or things that are kind of reserved for people of color, And are there times when you're not sure if you're, if they were thinking of people like you when they wrote the call or things like that, or if you might be taking it away from somebody who is even more underrepresented or that kind of thing?
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great question because, you know, in, in, in a lot of ways, like Asian people with Asian backgrounds are not depending where you're looking and you know in some places in academia they're not underrepresented Mm -hmm. in some places they're underrepresented but not nearly as much as other groups when you know and i i do think about that quite a bit um and i don't i don't have any good answers i try to think about what's the goal of a program am i taking something away from somebody am i just going to be providing cover for someone to say they did something when you know, they really needed to do it for, you know, in in some other way or, or you know, emphasize some other group. Um, I don't, I don't have good answers to that. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the, I mean, that, that's specifically about resources. And, and I think one of the ways mm-hmm. I've tried to respond to that is to, to kind of um, step back and say, like, like, why like why is this coming down to a resource fight among people of color um and and maybe you know and and I'm I'm at a point in my career where I don't need those kinds of things and where I also have more of an opportunity to be sort of acting on on a systemic level and so mm-hmm. in some ways maybe that's also part of why like I don't feel the, that personal tension as much anymore because I can now try to change the system and say there need to be more resources for everyone and, and I don't want right. to be a wedge. Um, yeah. And I think the other thing, I is to mean, feel... yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was I was just gonna I was going to kind of ask you because that, you know, what I said about like race being more than one thing. I mean, I think the you know, the issue of like, quote unquote, passing as white is a really interesting one. Because I I, I would imagine that that can cut a lot of different ways, right? Like, on on the one hand, that kind of, like, zero impression, or, you know, zero acquaintance, first impression, prejudice, maybe you're not going to experience that sometimes. On the other hand, there are things about your identity and experience that are going to get invalidated, and there, there are things about people you're you feel part of and connected to that you're going to witness because people aren't going to realize that, you know, they're not going to censor themselves in front of you or things like that. Um, And I think it's, it's okay to have an identity that's not the same as the world sees you like that is, I think that's a really big part of a lot of people's experience. And when we have this just unitary concept, if you're, if you're Indian, you're Indian in all these different ways, if you're whatever, um, like that's, I, I, I think I, I suspect even people who who have single quote unquote racial backgrounds or whatever experience a lot more of that disalignment mm-hmm. of those components than, than we usually talk about. Yeah. I don't know, but I mean, do you, do you, do you consider yourself a person of color? Like I, I, I think I used that label about you once and we had kind of an interesting conversation
1: Yeah. after that. So I, I don't think I've used it explicitly myself for a long time. I have sometimes, but it's been a while. But I bristle when, like, I remember one time somebody who I like a lot who was very well-meaning wrote to me and was talking about a group that I'm a part of and that you're also a part of and said there's only one person of color in that group, and, I, and they were referring to you. And I was like, <laughs> hey, like, I, I'm not sure if I am or not, but, like, how can you be sure, <laughs> you know? Like, right. Um, so I'm really, really torn about it. I mean, so I think I, I'm I'm with you now on the resources thing. So I started grad school the same month as nine eleven, and I – like, my advisor asked if I was going to apply for a diversity fellowship to go to SPSP, and at the time I didn't have a ton of resources, and I was torn about whether I counted or not. and what. But, like, 9-11, I mean, even though there were no Iranians involved in 9-11, it still, like, made my identity um, much more salient to me and to others, and I decided to apply, and I got it that year. But I've always felt like really weird about that. Like, was it meant for people like me? Did I take it away from someone who deserved it more and so on? And now I wouldn't apply for something like that. Mostly for the reasons you said that I don't, I'm in a position where I don't really need the resources, but even choosing whether or not to self-identify as a person of color, I feel like I could be taking something away from someone by doing that. Or I could be, it could be a cop-out, right? I could be, it could be that by not identifying that way, I'm trying to like get the benefits of passing or something like that. And so I, I'm really, really torn about it, and like, well, how do I weigh the fact that my skin color is really light, but my name is obviously Middle Eastern, and like, I had a boyfriend at one point whose parents thought me and my family should be deported, but on the other hand, I've hardly ever experienced any other, like, I've never been called racial slurs that I know of, Mm -hmm. Um, and I just don't know. I really don't know. Um, I mean, I
0: think, I think the, I'll say this, the. There's a f- with a lot of programs, whether it's you know fellowship and scholarship programs for diversity or or things like that, there's a lot of reasons why those are important and and yeah, w- one of them is to prevent discrimination and and that's probably where like quote unquote passing or whatever is the most relevant, but also like they really are to get different perspectives and experiences that yeah. ha- have not been represented and that that's not about how other people see your skin color that that's about, right. you know, your anyway. So I mean, I, I'm not, that's not yeah. like an answer for you, but that that's yeah, yeah. When, when I well, think about those and, kind of things. Yeah.
1: And one more factor that speaks in favor for me of identifying as a person of color is especially being back in California and being at UC Davis, there are a ton of Iranian students here and I've had a number of them come to my office hours and like they knew from my name that I was Iranian and they wanted to talk about that. And I've had many join my lab and so on. And that makes me really happy that, like, they see me as a role model and probably goes beyond specifically Iranian students. And so if, like, me joining a, like, faculty members of color group where I would be listed on a website and people could go and see that I'm there, like, if that would have a positive impact on students, that's a reason to do it. And that wouldn't be, like, taking any resources. I still have this, like, feeling of, like, what if... What if people think I shouldn't or I don't count? And because I don't know, I wouldn't be able to say I know for sure that I count. I think if I knew for sure, I wouldn't care what other people think. But, but I don't know for sure.
0: Wow, this is like a rare instance of Samin caring what other people think about her.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, yeah. uh, well, should we? Gosh, I, I don't know if we should move on or not. but um, Yeah, I um, feel like there's, I, I there's talk so about, much to talk about. Yeah, I don't know. Should we I mean, are you ready to How come to, you guys haven't go? asked me
2: anything about my race? <laughs> <laughs> Alexa, tell us about your race. <laughs> yeah, well, I think my dad did one of those like um uh, find out where your ancestors are from and they're like it's basically I'm 100% super white. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You know, the, the percentage thing is funny. I This was before the genetic testing thing kind of became, was around. But when I was a kid, people would ask me, and I'd say 50% Indian, 50% German or whatever. Um, and I can't remember when I started doing this. It was a while ago that I, I started feeling like percentages weren't a good way of representing my background. And it's kind of that fluidity idea. Like mm. sometimes I feel more than one thing at the same time. Sometimes I feel mm-hmm. Indian and white at the same time. And sometimes I don't feel either. And sometimes I, right, you know, and the idea of like yeah. the Plus things that American have to sum too. to a hundred is kind of a, yeah, yeah. And, well, and which is a really interesting, cause like, you know, uh, like to some people I am and to some people I'm not. And to some people I am, mm-hmm. but with an asterisk and whatever. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So those, um, anyway, that, that, yeah, I think the, the sort of like, the unity of both unity and also the idea that it like it, it sums to the same thing all the time for me is, is, but neither of those is, is really how I feel.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I will say about myself that, um, I remember going to college and feeling like totally out of place amongst a sea of white people because where I went to school growing up was like predominantly, um, Like East Asian kids, and um, and basically like I remember being in my first year high school gym class, and um, and like I think I was the only white person in the class, and so just all of my friends growing up were were not white, and it wasn't like a homogenous ethnic group in any way, Um, but somehow, and this is also just cultural differences or whatever. But then when I went to college, I went somewhere that's actually quite like the university of alabama i think in some ways except in canada um western university um and yeah it was like all these white college kids and i was like i i don't understand your culture
0: (laughs) yeah you know that i mean that's what i was talking about about like there's some part of me that feels most at home where everybody's different Uh and I I mean, I had the experience when I moved to Eugene, I was coming from the Bay Area, I lived in Oakland, mostly, and then San Francisco a little bit. And I was just used to walking the streets being around people who looked very, you know, who, 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 their, their skin and their clothing and their languages and all the other things were, were, you know, from lots of different backgrounds. And when I came to Eugene, it was like, Walking around the streets of Eugene, it was like, it was a visceral feeling, and it lasted for a long time, where I would walk around, I'd be like, just have this kind of almost, like, this sense of, like, this is different, like, this is, like, where are all the brown people and and all that? And it eventually faded, it, it took about six months um, of living in Eugene, and then, but then when we did our sabbatical this spring in Los Angeles, it was diversity again and it was kind of at first it was like kind of the experience in in reverse it's like oh my god there's like brown people around awesome Mm -hmm. and then you know like but I very quickly got used to it and then I kind of had a mini version of the experience I had when I first moved to Eugene when I came back um and yeah there there is something about like it's just it's hard to put a finger on it and you know but there there is some something very different about when when it feels like a majority minority or when when it's a plurality instead of a majority or something um just on some low level it feels different
1: yeah i think in areas where there's a lot more like diversity and also like different kinds of ethnicities people are more comfortable with not knowing what box to put you in and that's something i felt very palpably when i moved back yeah. to california after living in saint louis is in saint louis i could tell that people were trying to figure me out i could see like the gears in their head like right. you're not really right. from here but you don't have an accent but blah, blah blah whereas like back here like i can tell that people don't know what i am or where to put me but it doesn't seem to bother them as much and i, I mm-hmm. like that yeah mm-hmm.
0: yeah yeah, and I, I mean I should say there are a lot of things I I really do like about living in Eugene, but I I think that has been one one salient part of being in a and and it's something that like beca- I think because I grew up in a homogeneously white area that I'm more comfortable like more able to get at a, get to a level of relative ease than than some people are and and I know that's been an issue sometimes with recruiting faculty of color um and and some stay around and love it and some don't and I think that's that's part of it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um I feel like we should maybe move to our next segment and talk about gender and and we kind of decided Samin was gonna sort of kick us off talking about that
2: and maybe we can start with what's with your hair (laughs)
1: yeah yeah I cut my hair again yeah I mean it's interesting because I've had short hair a lot of my life so when I was a kid I grew up I was a tomboy and people thought I was a boy a lot um like most I think most people thought I was a boy when I was like in grade school um when I changed schools partway through the year like I was a really really shy kid and my classmates like surrounded me and wanted to know if I was a boy or a girl and I was like too shy to answer so I don't know like I don't remember how long that lasted but I think for a long time they didn't know if I was a boy or a girl um and then you know like by I think by middle school I started growing my hair out and like clearly was a girl um, and then I went to Carleton College, which is like a notoriously liberal kind of hippie college and during orientation, I met a guy so I grew up in California in the Bay Area where people are pretty liberal and like I didn't know very much I was not very aware of like issues of homophobia and um discrimination based on gender and sexual orientation, things like that. But I got to Carleton and met a lot of people from other parts of the country. And my first week there during orientation, I met a guy whose family had disowned him and like barred him from having any contact with his brother because he came out as gay. And that just like fired me up so much. So in college, like my main activism issue was homophobia and sexual orientation stuff. I was the president of the group movement against homophobia. I went every week to church basement in Northfield, Minnesota, to a meeting of PFLAG, which is Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays. Um, and like when I was home on break one year, my mom was getting really sick of me like moping around the house, having nothing to do. And she was like, well, what would you be doing if you were at Carleton right now? And I was like, Well, it's Wednesday night I'd be at a P Flag meeting. So we like googled P Flag meetings in the Bay Area and we went to one. And it's kind of interesting because like the dynamic there is most people there have like mostly it's parents who have a kid who's gay or lesbian or bi or trans and they're like, you know, wanting to talk to other people in similar situations, but it's open to anybody who wants to talk. And one of the reasons I really liked going at Carleton was that like I was my role was basically an ally. That's kind of how I presented myself and I wanted the parents to see that there are people who like really care about this and really support it, even if they themselves are not gay or lesbian or bi or trans, um, or queer. And yeah, so it was kind of funny. Like that was like kind of, I don't know, for me, it was like a kind of hilarious and typical moment in my life of like me and my mom going to a PFLAG meeting and like at the introductions being like, we're just here cause we want to support like this cause, but we don't have a family member who's queer. Anyway, and at at the end of college, I I also shaved my head. I had a buzz cut for part of college. Um, And I had a boyfriend in college, but he was like really, really nerdy and reclusive. And so people didn't know he existed. Um, And at the end of college, we all, like a group of us, went to this convention in Minneapolis for like gay rights. And at the end, the organizers of the conference were like, oh, and by the way, want to give a special shout out to our straight allies. So if you're straight, like stand up if you want to, and we'll give you a hand like a round of applause or whatever they were doing that to different groups and i stood up and all the people that from carlton that were with me were like what <laughs> like, <it was> great. <laughs> um, and so i graduated from carlton i'm pretty sure i'm like one of the only women like liberal gender queer maybe women who went to carlton and never kissed a girl um and i've pretty much always only been attracted to men so it's been like part of my like thinking about my gender identity but also because, like, I'm not super gender conforming, I keep questioning, like, my sexual orientation because I feel like mostly because other people question it. Like, I feel like other people think I must not be completely straight. And full disclosure, like, yeah, I have short hair now and I have many times in the past. I drive a Subaru. I cut my fingernails really short. I don't wear makeup. Like Cutting your fingernails really short is a
2: thing? I, I think keep so. finding yeah, about all these afraid. things
1: yeah I also pee and poop outdoors I don't know if that like correlates with me <laughs> okay <laughs> and to top it all off Alexa's my best friend so then people are like yes we knew it like of course and for the record I have still never kissed a girl um and I I also never wanted to be a wife like that was always something that really bothered me about heterosexual relationships um and So the older I get, the more I find myself kind of going back to who I was when I was like eight years old, which is like, kind of enjoying confusing people about gender about my gender. And like, yeah, like, I like the way I look when I look more like a boy. And I don't know what to make of that. Like, especially since I cut my hair again when I look in the mirror like if I have a necklace on I feel like what the fuck like that looks so wrong or like if I I put Mm -hmm. on a dress at one point since I cut my hair again and I like I hated it and I just wanted it off my body right away which I've never loved dresses but I feel like I'm getting more and more like it just looks wrong um but not to the point where I don't feel like a woman but but woman feels like a weird label too like I definitely don't feel like a man um yeah so I guess it I mean, it was interesting, like, the, the Hannah Gatsby thing. She talked a lot about gender and separately from sexual orientation, which I thought was really interesting and useful for me because I've mostly heard of those talked about together. And so it's been interesting to, like, realize that I can still be, like, gender nonconforming and maybe even queer. I don't know. Even if I'm like, I'm, like, pretty sure I'm only attracted to men or I don't know. I'm still not positive that I'll never I mean, be don't rule it out, matches. you know? Yeah. <laughs> Um, but like with um, race and ethnicity I also worry about like co-opting a label or like trying to like get all the benefits of you know labeling myself a certain way without having to pay a lot of the costs of it and yeah I worry about passing I worry about like all those other things so I like I haven't I don't think I've ever actively identified as queer LGBT in public I'm not positive about that but I think that's true um, and I've thought about like putting a rainbow flag in my Twitter um, profile, but I haven't done that. I've I go to marches like for Pride and things like that, but lots of straight allies and non-queer people do too. So like I've I haven't ever taken the step of doing something that would like clearly mark me as part of the LGBTQIA community. And I don't I feel the same way about that as I do about the race race ethnicity issue where I don't trust What's my own the- motives.
2: Oh Yeah, what's the concern? Um... Um, I mean,
1: I think I don't know if I am part of that community and I don't know if I if I would be, yeah, like trying to benefit from it somehow if I did claim to be in that group, right? Like if I'm wrong and yeah. I claim it, that has terrible consequences and same with like the person of color thing.
0: I think this is... To me, this is really interesting about how, you know, I mean, how, cat- how the 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 limits of categories and these are yeah. some, you know, sort of, and and we all, we passed around an essay by Charles Blow about, um, you know, which we should post in the show notes yeah, as well, yeah. where he talks about being bisexual and sort of his his journey and coming to realize that. And it's like, I mean, his, his experience that he talked about was like, you know, he sort of thought of himself as straight for a long time, but he would have these attractions to men. But they they weren't, um, they weren't the same. They weren't like mirror image of his attractions to women, either in intensity or in mm-hmm. in kind. And and you know, he uses this phrase, lopsided bisexuality, is kind of like where he, where he lands on. But you know, I think a lot of the, a lot of the activism and a lot of the social change, r- around sexual orientation and gender identity has been. Driven by people who couldn't authentically live otherwise, the and it you know it's like if you imagine that there's a spectrum, it was the people that were on the end of the spectrum that just they had no choice, and so in, and and being anything that would give them any degree of mental health meant defying what society wanted them to be, and and those are the people we look at, and I, I think we rightly credit people who had to live that way as pioneers but you know and and we're well who knows where the fuck society is going now but I I would have said I would have said this more cleanly if you we're heading in a direction like two years ago I might have said this more confidently but anyway like you know there there is this kind of new space where in some ways like like I I wouldn't feel depressed and suicidal if I couldn't live this way but it doesn't sit fully right with me like the the sort of like where 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 on the spectrum you are is kind of widening in terms of being part of the conversation and I think to me in a lot of ways that's a really like I, I totally understand not wanting to claim something that you're not but also just like I think there's a lot of positive value into saying look the categories don't sit on, on me squarely yeah and including like in the charles blow essay like he didn't the way he had been taught to understand bisexuality didn't sit on him because the way it was talked about was 50 50 was you know sexual and romantic being mirror images blah 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 um and he was like, "That doesn't fit me either." And and so just not. I mean, this is this is why I love like the, you know that we have terms like gender nonconforming because that, in some ways, it's it's not good because it's a negation, right? But it's nonconforming. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? But in other ways, it's like that could be anything. Yeah. Um, and that could be bits and pieces that do overlap and bits and pieces that don't. And that's kind of what I hear from you, Samin, when you you talk about sort of this intersection of your gender and and your sexuality is like it just. The world's categories just don't sit on you squarely, right? Yeah.
2: In the in the Charles right. Blow essay, there's um there's a line that I think from our discussions before the episode, I think that stood out a lot to Simeon and I, um, which is that he expresses this concern that he's going to be seen as uh, clinging to the normative but nodding to difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so getting all of the sort of, I guess, the perks of. Um, Of being able to like be in a normative category um, but then sort of like uh, I guess choosing to acknowledge the difference like when it suits you or something like that and he's like very afraid of being perceived that way Um, and I sort of uh, I understand that fear a lot and it's interesting because I think I had that concern more sorry I don't I don't mean to start my section early but like (laughs) before before i had ever dated women um and then once i had dated women it felt much like much easier to categorize myself that way um but of course like i mean i guess i guess things changed but i don't feel like i changed like i don't think that my i don't feel like my sexual orientation changed from when i hadn't dated women to when i had Um, and so, yeah, it's funny how, like, your, your concerns about, um, and I'm I'm not saying that you shouldn't ignore how other people see it, but it's funny how that, that uh, affects your own identity.
1: It's also interesting, like, in the spirit of, like, things changing, even though I haven't changed, like, so I look a lot now, like I did when I was eight, except much, much older, Um, but I dress (laughs) the same and I have the same haircut and, like, I refuse to, like, bend to, like, gender-conforming ways and blah, 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 blah. In my like quiet introverted way um but the fact that i'm now 38 like definitely changes i feel like being a 38 year old woman who's single and happily single and not that interested in getting married and so on is actually more queer and challenges the heteronormative yeah system right. more than like being mm-hmm. a relatively gender nonconforming person like i feel like which is weird right it should be more about my gender identity but like the choices i've made in my life and the fact that i'm not like obsessed with like finding a partner or whatever Sorry, obsessed is, sounds negative. I don't mean that. I think, I, you know, it's an important thing for a lot of people, and I think that's totally valid. <laughs> um, but, but it's interesting how I felt like I've, like, been a threat to the system more because of that than because of my tomboyishness or whatever you want to call it. I don't know what the right word for it. It doesn't feel like a tomboy thing. It feels like my gender identity. But, yeah.
0: So, I mean... I'm wondering if you'd feel comfortable talking about something that I think is a really interesting this is not a contradiction, but it's a really interesting juxtaposition, I guess, is between not feeling like a girly girl, sort of conventionally woman, woman, and at the same time, and we've talked a little bit about this before, especially in the last few years feeling that your identity as a woman has become salient and politicized. Like, Mm -hmm. do you want to talk a little bit about the sort of the relationship between those things? Because I I find that really interesting Mm -hmm. about you.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess kind of like how you described feeling more interested and willing to like take on, you know, diversity initiatives and things like that, leadership in that way. I feel like I've also become more activist and willing to take a leadership role in like, well, like with sexual harassment, for example, I, you know, ended up writing some stuff pretty publicly about that and yeah i hmm to me yeah it definitely doesn't feel like a contradiction at all and in fact it feels like it goes together like part of the fact that i'm like this that i don't fit into like the categories and so on is part of the problem like that's part of what's wrong with society and with people's ideas of gender and so on like I think a lot of the things a lot of decisions I've made in life choices and so on would be pretty uncontroversial for a man but then like I get very different sets of questions about it because I'm a woman I think that helps to highlight like some of the underlying problems in society that lead to other you know issues like discrimination and harassment and assault and things like that I think a lot of that is interconnected like the fact that people are made so uncomfortable by gender nonconformity is probably really related to violence and discrimination and prejudice and things like that so i see it as all connected and i think i mean i guess it now it seems obvious now that i think of it which i hadn't thought of before maybe trump's election pushed me to want to cut my hair again and like be more kind of visible in my gender non-conforming ways i don't know i hadn't thought about that but
0: i think it's i don't know if this is i don't know if this is how you feel like when i was talking about like how my sense of being Indian rises and falls and sometimes I feel the most Indian when I'm not around any Indians. Like mm-hmm. it's like my my you know, it's when I'm dealing with white people talking about being Indian, mm-hmm. um, whether it's in, in formally and, you know, theorizing or whether it's just conversationally or whatever. Um and it's kinda it's kinda like, no, okay, I get to define what this means and I, you know, and I, I I, get to represent myself in this conception. Um, and I get to talk about the ways where your ideas of it are wrong. And, you know, I don't know. I, it feels like there's something a little bit parallel in like, yeah. like you're not girly, you're not feminine, not, and there's nothing wrong with those things, but that's not who you are. And you're saying, I I still get to claim being a woman, but on my own terms. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It, I'm, I don't want to be putting words into your mouth, but... I that's kind of yeah. how it sometimes feels
1: i also like can relate relate to that like the idea of like you're the one in the room with the experience relevant to things. so like i see a lot of conversations you know among liberals about like how great strong women are and blah 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 and then i'm like yeah okay but do you really understand what comes with that like if you really want to support strong independent ambitious women or whatever like that has a lot of costs. That has a lot of side effects for you as an individual. If you want to be a partner to that kind of person, or you want to be a colleague or a good ally to that kind of person, like that's not just as simple as like saying, "Yeah, that's great. You're a good role model" or whatever. Like, there's actual things you have to sacrifice to make that possible. Um, and so, yeah, I think like the point of like listening to the people with that experience and how that that doesn't always happen. Uh, I can relate to that. Mm-hmm. Should we move on to Alexa's topic?
2: Yeah.
0: Alexa, Alexa's topic being Alexa. Yeah. <laughs> <My daughter is. laughs> so we should. Uh, can I? Can I just say to to sort of lead into this? This I feel like this was, this was like one of the earliest things we. have talked about having as a topic on the show yeah. was specifically alexa's story <laughs> yeah, that's like, I feel like you, it's like somewhere like in, me the, in the in list of
2: topics right like alexa's sexuality is right. like at the top of the list somewhere <laughs> yeah but
0: i, I should say I, I i feel like my nervousness has subsided now that i got past my that's great I'm, sanjay I'm, I, uh, yeah <laughs> i've been mm-hmm. i've been looking forward to this for a year no anyway
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah. um yeah well uh so I'm going to start by talking about pescatarianism, but I'm not, I'm not, it's not a bait and switch. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, uh, so I became um, a pescatarian at an odd time in my life, I think, which was uh, as a fully grown adult who had uh, at now lived in Alabama instead of living in Toronto. And so like, in some ways, that's sort of like an inopportune time to me to stop eating meat because Um, because now I lived in Alabama and actually like, it seems like it would have been like a lot easier to be a pescatarian in Toronto or vegetarian because, um, and so like, that's (laughs) sort of the same story with at least behaviorally my, my, uh, sexual orientation. So, um, I grew up in Toronto and, um, really like as, as a kid and like as a young adult considered like you know, wondering if, if I might be gay or might be interested in women. Um, but really just like, you know, you would, I think you would assume growing up in Toronto that that would be like something that was like very endorsed and very, um, prevalent, but I think it was endorsed, but not prevalent, or at least in my experience. So I just had no friends who, like maybe a couple of sort of acquaintances who were, gay men and, or gay boys at that time, I guess, um, and then really just almost no experience with gay women or bisexual women, um, so it was something that, like, I had, I guess, and I also had little dating experience growing up, so I think I started sort of dating kind of late, um, so I just, like, I hadn't really fully considered it and hadn't really, like, given... Um, being attracted to women like a real chance and I remember actually thinking like I could be attracted to women because like I really like women and I remember like caring a lot about like what women thought of me and I think if you if I were to say in hindsight like thinking about um, like uh, teachers or mentors or things like I think I had crushes on women but I definitely didn't see it that way at the time um and if I thought about, like, the idea of having some kind of sexual relationship with women, it was, like, so hard to fathom. Like, it was just, like, not within my, like, the repertoire of my imagination. So I was just like, well, that's like that's not something that I fantasize about, so I obviously, like, that's not how I feel. Um, Yeah, and so then, yeah, moving to Alabama and then, like, starting to date women when I was yeah, really like in my, I don't know, late late 20s or early 30s, um, I think was in some ways things about it were hard and easy that would maybe not have been what I anticipated. So like, um, yeah, so the, I think the caveat at the beginning of our episode is really, like, I want to emphasize that, like, I don't think my experience is uh, generalizable in any way, but Um, and, but I think, uh, sort of oddly to me, my experience, um, dating women in Alabama has been, like, very positive Um, I haven't experienced any explicit, uh, prejudice or discrimination I am, I know that this is not everyone's experience Um, but I do want to say that because, uh, at least it has been my experience. Of course, I live in a bubble and I live in a university town and things like that. Um, and I think the things that were were more awkward for me were um, things like how to like how to talk about that within a professional context, um, how to talk about it with my graduate students. So it would have been, I think, different if I had identified as bisexual, like, since when I was younger, and then that could be, I don't know, something that I figure out how to bring up with my graduate students, or, like, you know, maybe I can, like, refer to ex-girlfriends or something like that, but, um, but because this, uh, is more recent, it was, like, it felt like in order to talk about it with my grad students or anybody who I know in, like, a professional capacity, I would have to, it felt like talking about my sex life rather than, like, talking about my, love I don't know like you know relationships or something like that Um, so it's kind of funny actually like I think I don't really talk about my personal life too much uh, with my with graduate students but I knew that we were going to be recording this episode today and I was talking to um, one of the grad students in the program who I consider a friend and I sort of for whatever reason with her in particular I sort of wanted to like tell her before we recorded the episode and I was like hey we're we're about to record this episode tomorrow and like I'm going to talk about this and she was very diplomatic but her reaction was definitely like duh everybody in the department knows this about you (laughs) um so yeah also like Sanjay I think you were talking about um like not being able to pass and I've always um I think been able to pass although like some of my friends (laughs) 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 <laughs> say that uh there's some pretty gay stuff about me um so yeah and then there was something that also you said samin um you were talking about like how actually maybe the thing that is less normative is not necessarily like gender identifying in like a a non-gender normative way but like being like a like a, s- a single woman who isn't that you know, who is, like, happy to be single and isn't that interested in getting married or something like that. And I think there's some elements of that as well. So, like, I think within my circle of friends and within my family, like, the idea of, like, me being interested in dating women, um, everybody's been, like, super on board with that and, like, yes, like, exciting, like, you know, I know how to be supportive in this situation. Um, But times when I felt more non-normative have been like times when I've been in like unconventional kinds of relationships where like I've been in like a a couple of relationships that have been open and people people are are much more willing to like express their negative judgments about that (laughs) so like I remember like one of my one of my really good friends who like only wants the best for me um and this may be partly where this was coming from, you used to, like, tease me and be like, oh, hey, how's your girlfriend's boyfriend's girlfriend's boyfriend doing? <laughs> and that was, like, funny, but also, like, um, I knew that people didn't really, like, buy that as, or some people, of course, like, didn't really, like, buy that as, like, a legitimate relationship option or, like, you know, like, thought that I was, like, kidding myself and things like that, and that, Definitely feels like something that, like I don't, I doubt that I've talked about that in any kind of professional context, except for like to, f- to close friends of mine who are, who are colleagues. Um, yeah, my grad students probably don't know. Uh, maybe some. Um, so, yeah, um, I ran out of, s- of stuff to say. <laughs>
0: Alexa, can I? I'm curious, uh, I'd love to hear you talk about labels. So I feel like when you talk, when we talk about this and when you were talking just now, the the phrase you use the most is I date women uh, or dating yeah. women. And, and you know, obviously there are these labels that have a lot of cultural currency and, and maybe this connects to some of what we said about uh, categories and things like that. But like, how do you feel about labels like bisexual or gay or queer, or like in terms of your, comfort applying to themselves applying them to yourself or your identity
2: yeah that's a good question I mean I think I feel guilty about how infrequently I use the word bisexual to describe myself um and I that guilt might be warranted so like the reason that I don't use it often is because it's it sounds like I'm describing somebody else like it doesn't feel, like, a a description of me even though obviously it is, um, so, and, yeah, I, I guess, like, I tend to describe the behavior because it feels like an easy way to avoid, um, to avoid the categorization, um, but I think it may be a cop-out and, like, the more, that I mean I really like I liked the Charles Blow essay so much, and I think what he talks about it is 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 like there's no you, yeah, you don't have to be 50 50 or there's like no um, one kind of bisexuality. Um, and so maybe if yeah, like maybe using the the term to apply to a broader range of people as a way to. Um, reinforce that
0: yeah it, it feels like the <clears throat> I mean I don't I don't see it as a cop-out Alexa I it feels like there are, you know there are things about having a label that can be very validating and liberating for some people like you know there's this word that validates like a social reality of what I experience but then they can also be very constricting when they either imply things that aren't your experience or when they don't capture things that are your experience and and i don't know that it's that's kind of the like i i feel like when and this is not the you know definitional to a lot of those terms but you know when you when when you say someone's gay like it brings it's a i guess technically it's a stereotype it brings all these assumptions about or bisexual or these other words about that they that they have a coming out story that they um that happened when they were a kid or a teenager or whatever, that they faced certain kinds of prejudice that they, you know, um, like in the, the Charles Blow essay, that they have certain attractions, both sexually, but also romantically, mm-hmm. and that they feel them in certain amounts. In te- you know, it just sort of generates all these assumptions that on the one hand, if you were coming from, like, presumed heterosexual, uh, heterosexuality and heteronormativity... It would be like anything that's a departure from that would feel validating. But then on the other hand, you know, I don't know, like when like when you just tell your story, there's so much more to it than the labels convey. And so your shorthand, I date women feels like, yeah, that's that's kind of neutral. And it it gives you space to just define yourself without carrying all these things. Yeah,
2: I also think that there's something like that feels limiting, like about categorizing yourself just on sexual orientation, I think, because that seems like this one element of this much broader part of your identity, which is like, I guess you can use like words like attraction or whatever, but it's like, yeah, it's like, who do you fall in love with? And then there are so many different ways to think about falling in love, you know? And so you can think about like, I don't know, the people who, yeah, the people who you want to have sex with, or the people that you find attractive, or the people who, um, you are happy when you're with them, or the people whose attention you want, or the people who you want to be seen with, or the people who make you jealous, or the people who make you emotional, um, and it's like, for me, different elements of those, uh, yeah, like, sort of load differently onto women and men so like I think there are probably dimensions you could pick where I would be like yeah I'm like I would I would almost identify as gay and then there are other elements you could pick where I would be like further towards being straight or like it's more likely for me to feel that way about men um and so like yeah I just I don't know the cliche response. It's like, it feels very limiting or something. <laughs> do you think
1: that any of it has to do with, um, your, your gender identity? So we talked before the segment about how we're kind of like mirror images of each other where like mm-hmm. I question my gender identity a lot, but not really my sexual orientation or like, I'm not,
0: uh, right. I, I- I just, I totally want to take a screenshot right now and show a bunch of strangers and say, which one of these people (laughs) only dates men? Right, well, when we went to the dog park with Hugo, Alexa was
1: like, everybody thinks we're a gay couple. And I was like, well, they're partly right, but totally for the wrong reasons. (laughs) Um, And so I'm wondering whether like the labels might feel weird, partly because you look very feminine, like, you know, you don't have a lot of like the visible characteristics that many people stereotypically, not necessarily correctly, but associate with like queerness or things like that.
2: Yeah, I do think that that's that's true. Um Yeah, because I think so yeah, it's uh funny I went to um like a a training for um teaching in the prison stuff the other day and the the woman who runs it said at some point um yeah, like I'm obviously a lesbian and so like she's went on to talk about what that's like being working within the correction system or whatever. Um but uh but yeah, I don't know. That would be really I mean, funny if you said that. <laughs> you
1: just like we're like like well obviously as you can tell.
2: <laughs> um but I think also, yeah, the fact that maybe yeah, maybe it's not obvious, um is like one thing that uh I was like really excited recently when I told a friend of mine on my softball team ironically enough. <laughs> um that I was going to New Orleans um and she was like asking, you know, like we should meet up in New Orleans and get a drink and she was like who are you going with and I was like oh I'm going with this person that I'm dating. Um and she was like so I've never talked to her about dating. I've like she doesn't we're basically acquaintances, but we have a lot of mutual friends. She also works at the university. And she was like, "Oh, you're going with someone that you're dating. Oh, she's going to show you everywhere. Like this is going to be great." And I was like, "Actually, I, like I'm dating a man now, <laughs> um, but uh, it was like exciting to me that like that that I have a reputation, so that I don't have to like <laughs> like change my appearance.
1: It feels like a theme through all three of our stories is also like that that it were not easy to label or categorize, and I'm sure everybody feels that way, right? Like that's like yeah. kind of cliche, but I do think that it's interesting that that's like a really major theme that like confusing people is a part of our regular everyday experiences and like having to correct like, Actually, yeah, no, I'm not this thing you might assume I am or it's more complicated than it looks on the surface or mm-hmm. something like that.
0: Yeah. And I think, yeah, I mean, it, I think I also like as part of that, something, and I'm kind of curious what, you know, maybe we, we, I think we talked a little bit about this. We talked about this before we started recording too, but the sort of, I think all three of us have talked about like the, the the varied and complicated effects of claiming an identity Mm -hmm. where one one part of it is like people assume you've had experiences and there's a way I think all of us have kind of talked about like claiming in a way that makes people assume you've had certain bad experiences that you'd feel kind of like you know um Yeah, like, I mean, I, I, you know, like, when I talk about being a person of color, (laughs) I I look at like how black people are treated in America, and I'm like, okay, no, wait, wait, no, I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, and I've had these, like, conversations with my son figuring out his racial identity, and, you know, and that kind of thing. Um, And, you know, and the the sort of the complicated mix, sometimes model minority, sometimes whatever ways that... um, uh Asians are are sort of treated in academia but but you know so so they but also just like yeah the this sort of you know Alexa you were talking about like yeah you know, not wanting to claim these things um and on on the other hand like the you know i mean i want to be really careful how i say this cuz this could come out really wrong like it's not not like the the like benefits of a stigmatized identity exactly like that's way too simplistic but The that it to some audiences, in some ways, like I think what we opened with, like being viewed as like the authority on right, you know, um, people of color's experience or women's experience or queer people's experience or whatever. Um, And the way, in some circles, to some audiences, like you're you might be given deference or or whatever, and and feeling this like tension between the not wanting to abuse that or misuse it but also not wanting to shirk the responsibility to take that up mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i don't uh, i feel like all of us feel that and none of us knows where to land on it but uh and i mean yeah. and this is
1: like very potentially politically incorrect but all of us have some sense of choice in the matter which is also a really weird yeah. thing because these are things that usually aren't talked about as choices and in many important ways are not choices but there is the element of choice of like how to deal with it
2: oh. right yeah
0: yeah yeah, I mean, it, It you know, like, in, invoking that status in a discussion has effects, and they can be good effects and bad effects, and often it's both at the same time, and often you can't predict, but, like, that's a choice, and sometimes it's, you know, some sometimes, yeah, sometimes I'm sitting there wondering, should I bring my own background into this conversation, and what's it gonna do, and, and...
1: Yeah, and I don't I always know, you know what to do with this, this, that. But I feel like I question my motives a lot. Like, I don't always yeah. know. Oh, yeah. I recently read a tweet. This is going to be really trite. But I read a tweet summarizing some evolutionary psych research where they said that, like, women's attractiveness to men peaks at age 18 and men's attractiveness to women peaks at age 50. And I was like, shit, am I just trying to have the best of both worlds? Like, when I was 18, <laughs> <laughs> I was more fast. <laughs> uh-huh.
0: I I thought I thought you were going to bring that back to Hannah Gadsby and her. Uh, no uh, one Peaks at eighteen.
2: Yeah. Yeah, 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 that was a really powerful part of it. Fifty. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah.
0: So something that something that really I mean there are so many things and I hope people listening if you're still with us this is kind of a long one but I'm I'm okay with that but one of the things I was thinking about so many things from that special but one of the things you know she framed it as comedy versus telling her story and she had and I, I I'm not a stand-up comic and so I can't sort of speak to that framing but to me what it was about was like when when you're telling when, you, when you're talking about it yourself whether it's jokes versus not or whether it's different ways you tell your story how you take the other person how what are you doing for your audience and how do you take their comfort their entertainment all these other things you know and she has these very powerful stories about like telling about experiences as a joke for laugh and then she finishes the story and it's it's not Um, and that that is that was something that really stayed with me which is like yeah like I can I have a I have a I have a funny story I mean this is I really thought about this like I have a funny story I've told many times about being called the n-word as a child Mm -hmm. and like I I have a way of telling that story for laughs and but but I can I can tell that story is yeah I grew up in a place where that was like a thing that was totally someone felt totally okay saying on the schoolyard Mm -hmm. and that was my first experience not my first experience of that word um, not my first experience of being seen as different it's like you know, because I mean, the, the, the funny version of the story is like, I didn't know what the word meant. And so I went home and, and called it to my sister because I, I could just tell from the way it was being used that it was an insult and I was mad at my sister. And so I was like, oh, I heard I learned this new insult today. I don't know what it means. So and she like blew up and called my mom. And, you know, it was this sort of funny thing um in, in that angle. But then, yeah, the other case is like, oh, shit, no, like this is that's not funny at all. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's. Right. But yeah anyway
2: should, should we talk about other stuff that people do in locker rooms <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh yeah we didn't we didn't plan how we're gonna end yeah, this, right. did we? <laughs>
2: uh,
0: how about this i love you guys oh i i we were all nervous beforehand i the fact that we can have these skype calls and i can for like long stretches forget that this is gonna be Get put on the internet and sent to the world makes it possible for me to talk about this stuff. So Well we already talked about, about my avoidant attachment
1: style at last point, week, but. so you know how I feel.
2: Sanjay. I was just gonna say, like I'll say I'll say I love you too, Sanjay, so then to me <laughs> <and avoid it. laughs> Who was I telling you something? A I can't little...
1: remember that like I told my last dog that I loved her once and I felt mm-hmm. so awkward and I was just like I'm <laughs> never doing that again. <laughs> So Alexa, I point, wish can you, you had tell Hugo how I feel about him sometime? <laughs>
2: this is a pattern. Samin has told me ask, ask me to tell people how she feels about them more than yeah. once. Yeah. Um, I wish you had been wearing an ear uh, that's an electronically activated recorder um, yeah. when you said that to Bear. Yeah. <laughs> <It's
0: super awkward. laughs> uh, all right. Okay. Well, are we are are we done? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Okay. All right. Well. Well. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, this has been the Black Goat, and we'll talk to you next time.